Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined today, as always, with the handsome and wonderful Ian Clary. And also the more handsome and more wonderful Matthew Hoskin. Preeminently <laughs> so. We have to <laughs> pull apart any kind of creaturely impl- implications. Um, we invited Matthew this week, as we did Gavin last week, to kind of continue a discussion about Augustine. We, Ian and I finished uh, 13, yeah, all 13 books of Confessions. And we kind of, I think we both felt, or at least I felt like I'm still kind of dumb about Augustine and it's useful to just kind of broaden our mind on certain things. So Gavin is more theological. I suspect today we'll talk more about the uh, classical world just in general, but I guess we'll see how that goes. However, we would love for you, Matthew, just to briefly introduce yourself. So why don't you give the 27 second ver- version of who you are and where you've been? I mean, we'll ask you some questions. 27 exactly. Right. 27 exactly. I'm Matthew Hoskin. I am a native of Canada from Alberta. Yeah, you are. Live, currently live in the freezing city of Thunder Bay on the north shore of Lake Superior, son of an Anglican priest, um, raised in the evangelical charismatic wing of that. And I have a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, where I studied the manuscripts of Pope Leo the Great's letters. He was Bishop of Rome from 440 to 461. And I got to hang out with about 300 manuscripts um, that came out as a book version of that back in March. And I currently uh, teach for Davenant Hall, where I teach mostly patristics. Sometimes I edge into medieval. And I am also going to be starting to teach at Ryle Seminary in Ottawa uh, starting in January. So that's maybe the 27 second tour of me going quickly. So what is it you're doing in uh, Thunder Bay then right now? Uh, so I moved to Thunder Bay for a job opportunity that got killed off by pandemic restrictions um, and their inability to pay me as a result. So now this is where I am. I did live in Thunder Bay in high school. And so that's how I sort of got the opportunity was through some old friends and things. So, but mm-hmm. the beauty of having an army of friends and the internet is that I can still teach for two different seminaries on the internet. So yeah. it's pretty great. Mm. Yeah, I first heard of you just through the through the Davenant world. Um, you know, I think all three of us have connection now with with the Davenant Institute, and so I see that you've taught courses like uh, you you've actually taught one on on what we're talking about today. We're looking at Augustine, and and uh, so it looks like you did one, or yeah, you did one in twenty twenty one on on Augustine's kind of major writings. What do you yeah. have coming up for Davenant? Coming up in January, I'll be teaching the theological world of the Nicene Controversy. So it's going to start at sort of 425 with the Council of Nicaea, which called by Constantine to deal with a guy called Arius who was trying to teach that Jesus was a creation, basically. And it's going to run through (laughs) Arius guy. Who is that? And uh, running through up to 407 with the death of St. John Chrysostom, who was the golden mouth, one of the greatest preachers of the Greek church. And looking at both, how do we come to articulate the Trinity and sort of its glorious beauty in St. Gregory of Nazianzus in the late 300s, but also what are the other theological things that are going on at the same time? Uh, sort of bringing in that wider context is sometimes you you laser in too much in this kind of course and forget that some of the things that later councils in the 5th and 6th centuries talk about are already being talked about at the same time. And so we're trying to bring all of this together in one course so where did you go to school like so you went to edinburgh who did you study with at edinburgh 
at, I studied with Sara Parvis um, in okay. Divinity and Gavin Kelly in Classics. So okay. I got a two for Okay. And then where did you do, like, did you undergrad mad, master's work in Canada or? Yes. Yeah. So my undergrad was at the University of Ottawa, where I did classical studies. And then I did an MA in classics at U of T at the University of Toronto before hopping over to do a second master's of theology in Edinburgh. Okay. So when you were in Toronto, then where did you like, where'd you go to church? Where'd you, cause I lived in Toronto for 15 years. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I went to Little Trinity. Okay. While I, while I was there, yeah. which was like 2007, eight, 2007, eight, nine. I was in Toronto. Sorry, my phone's going off here. Ah. I, I have an important question. Okay, go for it. Uh, Leo, is he correct on Christology? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. I there thought he wants no no isn't he basically just arguing for an historian separation of the two natures without any kind of union did not didn't Cyril get it right so Leo also got it right so what <laughs> Leo gives us so yeah so the criticism that comes even from um, R W Jensen is that in the phrase agat enumetraque forma um, in Leo's most famous Christological thing and that is I realize that's a Latin phrase it's this whole passage that begins each form performs what is proper to itself. And so people like Severus of Antioch, who is this anti-Chalcedonian guy in the early 500s, right through to today, critics of Leo say, actually, Jensen goes so far as to say that if this isn't Nestorianism, it's worse, is actually what he says, which I think is just uh, a misreading of the text. Uh, because the point is that, like the point is he, Leo is doing out loud what Cyril says you're allowed to do in your head. Like St. Cyril says, obviously in your mind, this is how you prove he's both human and divine. But when you say out loud, you always just predicated of the God word. But the problem with that after Cyril's death is that there are people like this Archimander at Eutyches, who's like a fancy monk in Constantinople, start saying things where basically the humanity is being completely swallowed up by the divinity. And so you need to start actually articulating more clearly those things that are evidence for the full properties of both natures existing together. And so that's what Leo does for us. And Leo's Christology also, if Leo's wrong about Christology, so is the entire Latin tradition before him, because he basically just recapitulates them um, for a new context. He is basically Augustine, Hillary, and Ambrose synthesized into one short document. There you go. So. <laughs> well, we're okay with Leo. Uh, Gregory the Great, but after there's no more good popes after Gregory the Great, right? Isn't that what isn't that what Calvin says? I can't remember. Some or maybe Vermili or someone says that. I can't remember. <laughs> That's when it ends for Protestants. Nothing else happens as useful. Um, I got to interject here. Oh, so my computer just sent me a notification saying that it's going to do an update in five minutes. You can't just <laughs> oh. you can't just pause it. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll just just click the pause button. We'll figure it out. If not, Matthew and I will have a great conversation. Yeah. Oh no. Um. Well, we'll let Ian work out his technological <laughs> issues today. Super as, annoying. As he does. Um. So okay, I'm gonna I'll start. I'm gonna ask you a question, and we could maybe just figure out how, where to go from there. Oh, I I did it. I fixed it. I think I fixed it. Thanks for the announcement. I, I'm here. No, I, this has freaked me out. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a recording live on stupid technology. 
I'm I'm not editing this, just so you know. <laughs> you never I'm extremely it's happy raw to show off your Luddite ways. There you go. Um okay, so Augustine, he lives in the mid to late three hundreds, dies uh was it four thirty or something like that. So yep. he's right before Leo. He's kind of a little bit older than the Cappadocians, but they would have overlapped a little bit. I guess he would technically be alive when Athanasius was alive a little bit, right? At the beginning, before he's yeah. really a full Christian. Um, so how do we situate him among his peers? And what's what's happening in North Africa at this time? It's a province of Rome, but like, what is it? What is that place? Right. Well, lots of things. So situating Augustine among his peers is actually, I like guys like Augustine are part of this privileged group, um, privileged by providence, privileged group of, of theologians who get to live beyond uh, the, the first council of Constantinople, when basically within the church of the Roman Empire, Arianism was done. And so then uh, that means that people like Leo and the last years of Ambrose and a certain portion, about 10 years of St. Gregory of Nyssa, they get to devote their energy to other theological questions than the question of the divinity of the son and the spirit in relation to the father. So that means that he is able to turn to some really important things to do with the providence of God. And uh, it's also this interesting gap between, between ecumenical councils when everyone sort of starts to get caught up in whatever the moment of the day is when people are having other little smaller fights along the way. And so Augustine is able to articulate a, Christology to both pagans and Christians and all these things in a way that is not worrying about defending any of the church councils or anything, but simply about explicating orthodoxy as he understands it. So uh, he sort of is in this, um, most of his career exists in this beautiful moment. Um, alongside Jerome, who is out trying to make new controversies, but <laughs> both of them are around the same time as each other, they're floruit. It's an interesting way to put it because you're, you're right. I mean, the the whatever the next big uh, controversies are is like Chalcedon and Orange and so on after that, and they're not. Yeah, it really is an interesting. But I would even almost well, I guess you said this. Even like the Cappadocians, they're almost in that same period too between uh, Nicaea and Constantinople, three twenty five and three eighty one, where yeah, there are some debates happening. They're really important, you know, Mias and so on. But they're almost able to say, we already kind of believe this. Let's work it out. Let's work out our worship, and I think that might be one of the re part of the reasons why their writings are so perennial, so useful, so unend unendingly helpful to us today, because it's almost the positive presentation of what's going on, despite the fact there are a lot of disagreements. <laughs> um, okay, so that's him. So uh, can you just name people who are alive around when he's alive, like emperors and popes and bishops? Because I think sometimes you hear like Augustine and you forget like, Oh, Ambrose and Jerome are also or Rufinius or like these guys are all around each other. Even like Chrysostom's are alive at the same time, right? Like, but we all, yeah. we all we don't think about that. You just think they're like discrete people. Yeah. So Augustine, it's it's actually really interesting to think about. He is in Rome at the same time as Donatus, who is actually one of the most famous late antique grammarians and teachers of rhetoric. Um, and then he goes up to. Milan at the same time as Ambrose, who is one of the most famous orators who goes off and becomes a bishop. Um, so he's even in the same city at the same time as some of the other famous guys. And in fact, Jerome himself was a student of Donatus. 
uh, before he went oh, off to become a monk. Yeah, so uh, Jerome is also a trained rhetorician, trained orator, which is very obvious if you read him. So, and in terms of emperors, um, sort of he, Augustine, his main period of flourishing is the end of Emperor Theodosius the Great, mm. um, who sort of, what can we say about Theodosius? He regathers together um, in, under a single dude for a bit, all of the official auctoritas of the Roman emperor under one guy. Um, but then he does the normal thing of having two sons and giving it to each of them in 395. So then you have these two less awesome emperors after him, his sons, um, Honorius in the West, Arcadius in the East. Arcadius is the guy whose wife gets Chrysostom exiled unto death. Right. So that's sort of what he's famous for in ecclesiastical history. <laughs> and uh, hey, and Honorius actually has, there's a fascinating letter that Honorius writes to Arcadius about that because there's like riots in Constantinople over this. And Honorius says, as, and some other stuff to do with um, the empress. And Honorius says that this isn't your job as emperor. Your job is not to depose and exile bishops. Um, this is just causing all sorts of unrest and you should keep out of that kind of affair which is sort of shows a slightly different attitude in terms of the relationship between the magistrate and the church between East and West. Anyway, so that's just cool stuff that I know. <laughs> uh, who else is alive? Chrysostom. Oh, the tail end of the, some of the famous desert fathers. This is the other thing I was trying to think about. Mm -hmm. So Antony probably dies around the same time St. Augustine is born, but then guys like Evagrius of Pontus is around at the same time. Um, and then John Cassian, Mm -hmm. um, oh who yeah, goes, yeah sort of spends all that time in the desert he and actually some of what Cassian's doing is responding to the whole Pelagian crisis that Augustine is famous for and trying to come up with a way of being true to the ins like the instincts of Augustine about the necessity of grace but also that feeling that we have that somehow humans need to be held responsible and so he's not as we would say he's not theologically as good at it as Augustine he gets into lots of trouble by a guy called Prosper, but you can sort of see he is still within the bounds of orthodoxy, despite what some of his later detractors might say. I'm a fan of Cassian. Um, even if I end up siding with Augustine because of the logic of the situation, I get where he's trying to go. It's the so-called so, like semi-Pelagian controversy. So, right? yes. Um, <laughs> so-called being like stressful. So <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh and Pelagius, he's from, isn't he from like Ireland or something, if I remember this right? Then he goes to like... Oh, Britannia. Britannia, yeah. He goes to Rome, and actually it's been pointed out that we overemphasize, like it's like this, it's, that's just like a random biographical fact that he's from Britain. The, the Pelagian drive is common to like a lot of monastics and common to a lot of people coming out of Rome at that time. And so to try to imagine that it's part of some sort of particular special instinct of the Celtic world, which is what some people do with it, is to miss the fact that it's actually part of Latin speaking culture and late antiquity. I yeah, think it's part of why, that'll, ex that'll explain why like Celestius or yeah. Julian Platinum or whatever can pick up on it too, right? Like they're yeah. that sort of background. I think it's part of Ian Clary's psychos too, because he's Irish <laughs> in background. I think he's that's a bit right. of a semi Pelagian, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean that seems like a good this. judgment to make on the basis of all this evidence. This might be a, a, a dumb question. My but... wife is from Wales, and I like to tease her that he's from Wales, and so all the Welsh. <laughs> <Pelagians>, so. um, 
this is probably a dumb question, but there, there, there seems to be always, at least there still is today, but in the early church world, you have these kind of um, really strict movements like Novatian, uh, Novation in Rome in the, the 200s or so. The Donatists have certain strictures. Is Pelagius just kind of one a part of one of these movements that's just like, it's almost like a pendulum swing where things get too loose and he's really trying to get back to whatever a stricter form of Christianity? Is that just like maybe a, a broader way to describe who he is and what he's doing? Or is he really unique? Um, I would say that is a really good way of describing what Pelagius is doing. If you think what he and then his later supporters like Julian of Iclanum are saying, um, it is really, it's a strictly rigorous and moralist vision. It's not, if you read, I don't know, pop Pelagianism on the internet today, it's all <laughs> about the, we have this endued ability to just be good in and of ourselves. And like, do you realize what goodness means to these guys? Like they are, these are the guys who are, there is no hope for you if you start thinking too hard about this. Um, if it's all up to me and you look at the moral standards of the Bible, then you're, you're out. Um, but the, one of the ways that I would say you're definitely right about this is that at the same time as Pelagius, um, there is in the Eastern church, well, going on a group called the Massalians, and much of their teaching is very similar to his. And the primary thing that they start off with is moral rigorism. Um, and they believe that you can and should, all of your own accord, um, be able to become holy. And they say things like baptism does, does nothing. It's all about morality. Um, the Holy Communion does nothing. It's all about morality. And so they get uh, targeted by a guy called Mark the Monk. Uh, who actually says oh, that's, a great name. Very, that's <laughs> awesome mark the monk i like it mark the monk it's like that's a that's not a very specific which anyway ongoing academic debates as to which mark which monk named mark is this mark the monk <laughs> but he has some I'd say some really good things to say that sound very much like Augustine in response to Massalians that are equally applicable to Pelagians. Hmm. Well, it just, it seems like a regular perennial thing. I mean, you, you know, think of like the English Reformation. After a while, some independents felt like the the state church at that time was was too loose. They're more rigorous. It just, it just seems like a, a common pull that goes back and forth in church history. And um, sometimes I think if you think of a guy like Pelagius, you just think he's like this unique, singular individual who comes and rides on a horse from Britannia and enters into the world and starts a new movement. It's not, it's not quite right. Did okay. You know so that, that uh, did you know that he's uh, was part of Arthurian legend? No, but go on. So I'm pulling this totally from Hollywood, but uh, do you know the Clive Owen film about Arthur? Yes. Yes. The new one? It's like, yeah, but it's like set in the Roman empire. It's, it's like 10, 15 years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then there's a character in there. That's a monk named Pelagius who comes from Britannia. And uh, mm. like, it's got to be the same guy. It's got, I mean, those. It's in a movie. The like 100, no, how many years? No, it's decades, is it? Not 100 years, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so actually the event, so here's the fun, fun facts about the later and post-Roman world is that, so because when, uh, when a heretic comes from somewhere, you accuse everyone who lives there of that heresy. So like <laughs> Spaniards will spend the rest of late antiquity and middle ages of being accused of being Priscillianists because of the guy Priscillian of Avila. And so the British will spend the rest of probably forever. They probably are to this day accused of being Pelagians. <laughs> and, uh, and so then this guy, Germanus of Auxerre, who is a character in that film, 
comes over in the 450s, 440s, 450s, to deal with this outbreak of Pelagianism back in Britain. Um, and so he comes and they hold a little council and he, through his humility, simplicity of speech, as opposed to the Pelagians who are all fancied up and uh, they're just sophists, basically. He sort of wins over the populace and there's a triumph of orthodoxy. Wow, so, cool. yeah. uh, am I not right to say that Martin of Tours is, is just right after Augustine? Like he's similar. She's late 400s, isn't he? Uh, Martin of Tours is about the same time as Augustine. Um, he's like, he probably dies, oh, is it 380 or 390? Because um, he is a soldier in the service of the Emperor Julian. Oh, who, uh, right, when against, Ju but while Julian, is, Julian. Is, <laughs> it would have been against Julian. Um, sorry, sorry, I mean, Augustine has a book called Against Julian. So oh, yes. Yeah. So this is that very Julian um, yeah. who rejects Christianity. Um, and when he becomes emperor publicly, he rejects Christianity in 361. Mm -hmm. um, and so Martin, when Julian was Caesar, which is like junior emperor in Gaul, which is modern France in like the late 350s, um, Martin was serving under there. But he had a case of conscience while serving in the army that as a Christian, maybe he shouldn't be running around, you know, just killing off Alemanni and burning their houses and stuff, which is what Julian was famous for, for doing. So he left and became a monk instead. And his feast day is on Remembrance Day, which I always think yeah. is a to remember. The day, that, the, the day that Martin Luther was baptized, too. Oh. Um, so so that's why, hence he's why his name is Martin. Um, so... Um, so we're, we're kind of framing him in terms of these characters and these various figures from history. And we typically describe the period of time as late antiquity, um, which seems in a sense like, a, I don't know, do you, do you take it as a kind of like a made up term uh, to just try to frame an era? And like, how do you, how do you see what, what late antiquity really is and like, where are like some key defining features? Yeah. So there is a way in which late antiquity is kind of made up. It's, not that it's a bad thing, um, right. but it's an attempt by cultural historians like Peter Brown, who's like really good. So I'm not dissing on Peter Brown here, no. um, but try to find trying to find things that um, make sort of this period of sort of the later Roman Empire into the early Middle Ages. What are the things that actually make it distinct and unique and tie it together in a cultural sense? So which which makes it much looser and much harder because he in his book, The World of Late Antiquity, actually pushes in the beginning to like. Marcus Aurelius, which I think is like a little bit insane, if you ask me. Um, but someone pointed out when I was trying, I tried once to be like, well, let's just do later Roman Empire. And so like cut off, like say 400 or Justinian or something. And someone pointed out, but like culturally, Constantine is more like Augustus than Justinian is like Constantine. Like so much like, so why would we group these people together, but not these people, right? Because cultural change is always over a continuum. So the end up the end dates always end up being a bit arbitrary. Yeah. So. So what are what are some defining features? Like what are some of those cultural things that that kind of like give shape to it? Then that 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 really forms the backdrop backdrop to Augustine's world. I would say uh, something that is it's hard to articulate well, but the emergence of what we might call the individual, mm. which is why Peter Brown says Marcus Aurelius is the first late antique person. Uh, okay, because like of the, the inner citadel sort of thing. Yeah, that sort of thing. And sort of, and part of this, I would say perhaps actually the emergence of the person as opposed mm -hmm. to the individual, because a lot of Greek and Roman philosophy is tends towards monism at some stage. Um, but now I alone 
if I'm doing like say Plotinian Plotinus, well, you had Caleb Coho on before, so we've you've yeah. talked about this on this show. So like if you're doing sort of Plotinian mysticism or whatever, you alone can reach upwards towards whatever the divine is, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Whereas previously, sort of traditional Greek and Roman stuff, you meet the gods by going to a sacrifice and eating the sacrificial meat or burning incense back at home to the Lares and the Panates at your household shrine. In late antiquity, it's like, but I alone, independent of all of that formal culture, am now actually becoming more introspective. And you're starting to think about what is a person, and which is what the Cappadocians, through looking at what the Trinity, how do you articulate who the members of the Trinity are, sort of realize that a person is an individual, but it's an individual who is in specific relation to others, which is how we are an analogy for, a very poor analogy for the Trinity. I'm not going to go all social Trinity on you here because I, I don't think it's a good idea. We'll throw down if you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, but God, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are only understood but as being different in terms of relations. That's how the distinction is made without making an actual difference, right? How they have a single Lucia. And so then when you start thinking about that, that being at some level is communion, um, which is, I'm stealing the title of the book by John Zizulas there. Um, for those who don't read Orthodox theologians. Careful. Um, but um, even though I don't actually go in for all of his interpretations of the Cappadocians, his, that book actually has a good point that the knock-on effects of this for us in terms of how we start looking at other persons are important for the development of human psychology and all these things are emerging partly as a result of this deep meditation on the Trinity in the fourth century, which we see, I say Augustine is the fruit of that. Augustine. So in, 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 in the sense of like, so, you know, Philip Carey has his book, you know, Augustine, the invention in the, the invention of the inner self. Um, yeah. So do you, so going back to, you know, us in the last number of months working through confessions, is that a, is that kind of like a primary example in terms of texts that would illustrate that then that there's, here's the individual, you know, and the individual before God uh, and all of his psychological turmoil. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that confession sort of is one of our key texts for showing what this sort of emergence of the individual person is and what it looks like um, for culture and for theology and introspection and all that. I keep on thinking of it as a memory palace um, in confessions where he has all of that, the, the ability to start thinking about memory in that way. Um, like Augustine is doing philosophy and doing theology in himself with God Whereas the older tradition of Plato is people doing, Plato is always removed. He's never a character in his own dialogue, right? It's yeah. always Socrates. And even if Socrates says it doesn't mean Plato believes it, right? So whereas Augustine is himself, he is, his, he is the main character of the narrative of his own personal theology and philosophy, which I think is something very different. Yeah. So is the culture shaping Augustine this way? Like, is he is this something he's coming to his own self or is that late antique world where that is a kind of like that individual uh, kind of defining theme? Is that, is that driving him this way or is that, is this kind of like, he, or I mean, maybe in a sense he's driving it too. I don't know. I think in a sense he's, I mean, he's, he's one of these people who's just, he's one of these brilliant minds 
who is going to be pushing through and doing new, exciting, interesting things. So he's doing something no one else does or will do for ages in confessions. And and so doing doing uh, theology in this way, he sort of is maybe not necessarily doing it directly through the wider culture around him, but we do know that he actually, it's not that he's, he's not ignorant of what's going on in the Greek fathers though, right, his contemporaries. And so that his meditating on those texts of the Cappadocians and of Athanasius, uh, we know he definitely read Athanasius, I think it could be shaping him to be able to start doing more introspection because of that, or because of reading things like the life of Antony as well, which we know he read. So, so is, that, is that, sorry, one more question then, because you got me thinking. I don't so, think you're allowed to ask one more question. Um, <laughs> So, so then is the rise of, so, so you've got, you know, uh, Constantine, uh, then you get a kind of a push as, as the church starts to change and becomes more kind of like, like the culture. So then you get a rise of monasticism that'll kind of come out of that as a bit of a reaction. Is, is monasticism an important backdrop then to that rise of a kind of discovery of the self? Um, so you're, you're noting that there's the Cappadocian fathers, but then you have like the desert fathers who are going out. And, and being their own individual selves and then their writings or there's the stories about them are then permeating in the, in the church and in the culture. So is monasticism actually a kind of like a backdrop to that, that move in late antiquity? I would say it definitely is. And I think that's sort of what, and this is the thing that actually distinguishes the desert fathers from previous experiments in Christian asceticism is they leave. So if you read the life of Antony or the lives of any of the early guys like St. Pacomius, who's a bit later than Antony in terms of when he starts, but they like die around the same time. Before they go out, they actually are staying with local Christian ascetics in the town and in the city. What makes them different is they're leaving that integrated social world of the village of the polis. And so if we start thinking like Plato and Aristotle, they actually leave behind that and go off into the wilderness to do nothing but meet with God and fight demons. Hmm. And so their escasis is much more individualized um, and much more distinct from the wider world around them than that that would have been promoted by Clement of Alexandria or something like that about a hundred years before. You should expand on the idea of the polis because I think if you live today, we just have different categories that might make it hard to understand what that means. Uh, sure. So... I mean, the polis, it's a Greek word for city, but it's not just like, it's more than just a city, even geographically speaking, a polis would be what we would actually often term a city state in its like oldest um, Greekist form. So sort of the polis of Greekist. Athens, Greekist, yeah. Um, and so the polis of Athens is not just the city of Athens that we would think of in terms of urban buildup, but also the whole region of Attica which surrounds it where they're like wheat fields and all sorts of things down to the Piraeus on the coast. And, but the polis itself is also the place where obviously what we would call politics takes place. And so then, and this is actually what distinguishes civilization itself from whatever it was Adam and Eve were up to, whatever our ancestors were doing before they built cities is it is a common, it is a gathering of people for the common purpose of living well together, basically. Um, which results in a differentiation of labor. So you end up with, rather than everyone just being like, I'm a farmer or I'm a hunter and a gatherer, you start being like, I'm a potter because there are farmers who do other stuff. 
because we have large enough grain yields with civilization and everyone cooperating. So it's the creation of cooperative society, which therefore leads to the creation of laws because people don't always get along, right? And so a polis in one sense is just a city, but a city itself means civilization. Um, and it's this cooperative society of people with differentiated roles working together, governed by laws, and obviously different constitutions will govern different cities. So, um, so, so leaving the polis is leaving, in essence, civilization for something quite different. It might be interesting, too, to note, like, you have these ascetics or whatever, they go off. There's some that are in cities, but mostly they go out or, well, I guess different kinds. Um, how does that relate? Because there is also a lot of secular or that's the wrong word, a lot of non-Christian similarities between say, mystical uh, Platonists or something like that, who will do a lot of this contemplation. And like, So what is the, how are they different? How is a monk different than a Platonist? Well, I think one of the things, Augustine actually shows us this in Confessions, that he actually does this sort of Neoplatonist, Plotinian mysticism stuff, right? You're trying to empty yourself and reach up towards the one or whatever. But it's not until he's a baptized Christian and member of the society of the church that he finds what it was that he was looking for in that platonic moment and this is what i say whether we're thinking like late antique platonist stuff or what i sort of some of these westernized versions of sort of buddhist or hindu meditative practice so i don't know what about buddhism and hinduism themselves to know how closely what people i've met do but these things where you're just trying to empty yourself or reach towards an almost unknown god in the Christian meditative practice of people like the Desert Fathers, you're not so, you're not really emptying yourself so much as making room for God to fill yourself. So if you're clearing your mind, you're clearing your mind to focus your mind on God and on the Psalms mostly as well. So it's very text-based as well, I guess, is another thing that would differentiate what they're up to and make them different um, is that they're meditating over the Psalms and singing the Psalms and seeking God there. So that's, I say, one of the main distinctions between, say, a, the Desert Fathers and a Platonic Platonist counterpart. That's super helpful. Um, how, how do you see then, like, this period as it will move? So we've kind of looked at, you know, late antiquity in relation to earlier periods of time in the classical world, patristics. How is it, how is it in terms of its influence, and especially with Augustine going into like the early Middle Ages and then on down the line? Because it, it seems like it's this weird transition period, right? From, from the classical world to the early Middle Ages. And it's, you know, kind of amorphous in where you situate it. So, you know, you think of like maybe even somebody like a Boethius or some of the others that are after him, like what, what, what where, where does that influence lie? Yeah. Uh this is actually, of course, what you've what you've just pointed out is one of the things that makes late antiquity so cool, is that it is this it is this transitioning period. That's why guys like Peter Brown try to make it more than just later Roman Empire, early Middle Ages, but instead see this flow from one stage of culture to another. Um, and so, a lot of what these guys do, especially Boethius, Cassiodorus, um, and even some of the monastic writers like John Cassian, is they're taking this wisdom that is coming at them from behind. Or even the literature guys um, are doing it. Um, Servius does it with like sort of Virgil and stuff. And they take this whole deposit of culture and they create something that is reflective back 
on the classical past and transmitting it forward into this new world. Because in late antiquity, there's also an awareness that you're in a world grown old and that you're not living the golden age of Augustus or the golden age of Plato anymore. And so then you're trying to retrieve the best of what came before you to pass it on to what follows. So what this does is the tastes of late antique men are what govern the access to the classical world of the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, partly because one of the major cultural things they're doing is making a code, the Codex book, um, a book with pages bound on one spine, um, is so the fourth and fifth centuries is really when that takes off as a way to make a book. Um, it has obvious benefits over a scroll. And so everything that predates the transfer from a scroll in papyrus to a codex with either papyrus or parchment, it doesn't last unless it's in like Egypt or Syria where it's really dry because it's just going to rot. And so that means that the stuff these guys really wanted to keep is the stuff that the Middle Ages gets and recopies and reads over and over. And the stuff they were less interested in doesn't make the it doesn't make the cut because making a book is expensive. And so part of how they influence it is what when you read these medieval guys, what they think of as being like Greek philosophy is really what Boethius thinks of as Greek philosophy. Um, and when you see what they're doing with poetry, but they don't have access to Ennius anymore, who is like the great Roman poet from before Virgil. He's like Virgil supplants him so totally that guys in the three and four hundreds, they're reading Ennius, they're commenting on Ennius, but they're copying Virgil. And we have like we have fourth century copies of Virgil, um, illustrated prestige um, copies, more than one, multiples, and we have zero of Ennius. Wow. And so it completely shapes the way all of us to this day look back this funnel from uh, scroll to codex completely changes to this day the way we look at the classical world because what survives like all those extra books of Livy people are like I'm tired of Livy and they just didn't do it so you know what that reminds me of um in our a time uh, banner of truth trust published a lot of puritan books but they published the puritan books that they were interested in or who were part of a specific puritan stream so a lot of people when you think of the puritans just think of that singular puritanical stream and not necessarily the richer diversity of the the Puritans who were not, not always in the same stream that Banner of Truth Trust published. And so, so it's good that Banner of Truth did that. It's not a bad thing, but it creates a sort of accidental misunderstanding of who the Puritans are and what they believed and yeah. the diversity of their expression and how they disagreed with one another, how many Puritans were 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 remainers they weren't all leavers of the brexit. Uh, they didn't all go on brexit <laughs> they're on brexit <laughs> take, on, take a boat over to uh to the colonies to create a nation on the basis of rebellion against proper authority <laughs> um it's in a room here so we're all you know this is, this is good oh stuff. actually we're all canadians yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah we are so we're like yeah oh oh wait nobody's offended here Matthew, are you a tory too you're a tory right I'm a Tory, yeah. We're Heck one of, yeah. there's only four of us in Canada and there's three on this. Why the other we... Oh, Ron oh, Dart. Well, Ron <laughs> Dart. And actually, isn't the fifth one. There's a, a priest. I, I'll, I don't won't say his name on the podcast, not just in case, but he's another priest that I know um, out in the, moving on to the East now or in the East now. So um, 
Yeah. Okay. There's five Tories in Canada. So we're about to take over. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> After Pierre gets to be PM, we'll, we'll get elected next. I'm sure our party. Right. So we're fine. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this gets to work. I think we should, we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, Ian, do you have anything that's like just really the one I want to so yeah. uh, so tying it into so moving away kind of more from the socio historical to like more really even a sense theological or spiritual. What is Augustine's influence then? You know, as he's as he himself is then becoming like the dominant figure uh, coming out of late antiquity into the Middle Ages. Like, what are the major streams of his influence? Do you think? So. Augustine is major for the doctrine of the Trinity on the one hand. Um, I'm working my way through Peter Lombard's sentences, which are like the scholastic textbook. And it's, I'm I'm in book one about the Trinity. It's almost all Augustine and trying to sort through what Augustine teaches on the Holy Trinity. So he continues that. Um, He is also famous for, as we all um, today, when you say Augustinian, you don't mean his doctrine of the Trinity. You usually mean predestination. And that is his major, um, that is this major particular thing that, that sort of distinguishes him maybe from some other thinkers. And you can actually find it. I was thinking about ways uh, that Augustine is so influentially. If you go through the collects of the Book of Common Prayer, most of them are they're actually late antique. And you can find Augustinian teachings about grace and free will hidden in the prayer book collects, which is um, just beautiful and really cool. Are you a 1662 guy? So, you know, I, I have my 1962 prayer book uh, from the Anglican Church of Canada. Oh. I, I do own 1662 somewhere. Um, somewhere. He doesn't even know where it is in the shop. Don't even know where it is. Okay, <laughs> I have the annotated 1662 at home uh, on the shelf with my other pretty looking books. So, um, my unread pretty books. <laughs> my unread. Well, it's for my Richard Hooker, so it's not entirely unread, that shelf of pretty books. Um, oh, how does but, Confessions, how about Confessions itself? Like, how does that get picked up in the Middle Ages? Conf- so, Confessions of the Middle Ages, not a, not a bestseller. Wow. So, it's funny, in the, from the early modern period, from like the 1500s with like Teresa of Avila onwards, hot stuff. Like, we're all reading this, you know, Rousseau's reading it and coming with his own weird romanticism right. version of it. But in the Middle Ages, they're like, you know what we like? We like De Doctrina Christiana, because it's yeah. a handbook for preachers. Um, and that's his most popular work of the Middle Ages, not Confessions. So, um, and I mean, you can tell, I say that if you read some Cistercians and things you will actually find, um, like uh, William of Saint-Terry or Guillaume de Saint-Terry, his meditations are influenced by meditative aspects of Confessions, but it's it's like, a, it's a fairly thin thread of influence um, through the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. interestingly cool i didn't know that yeah well matthew i think it was a pleasure to chat with you about yeah, augustine feels like we've been talking for five minutes yeah. honestly I, I can yeah. it's been great yeah well we can do it again we, got this, we could talk about uh we're gonna do aquinas. Or, or the or hooker or, or aquinas or something like that again yeah we're gonna do aquinas next for our for our podcast so we can maybe find a way to get you back on your, and we'll put in the show notes uh, links to how to register to both your classes at Ryle and at uh, Davenant Institute. Great. Thanks. Uh, I think it's still open registration probably until January for both, I think. So anywho, we'll get that in there, but yeah, it was fun to talk to you. I think sometimes uh, hearing the big picture can really make authors come alive. Like just to know that like Chris Austin was alive at the same time. I know a bit off in terms of years, but like, it just kind of like helps you think, Oh yeah, the world's bigger. 
Like that was just happening right across the that little little bit of river between uh, Augustine and uh, Chris Austin. So, anyways, cool stuff. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, friend. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Man.